All right, let's turn this morning to Proverbs chapter 21 once again. Proverbs chapter 21. And we'll be dealing this morning with the subject of the priority of righteousness. The priority of righteousness. I don't often pull a lot from introducing a particular text from what's going on in our society. But today, of course, we know during this time of year, especially uh, the last few weeks, and of course this week uh, will certainly be the case, uh, the priorities of people uh, take on a bit of different uh, value. Uh, Things that are normally the priorities of our life uh, tend to take a back seat to the priority of uh, last-minute things leading up to uh, what we acknowledge as course of uh, the celebration of the coming of Jesus Christ. But Solomon, as he writes these two verses, Proverbs 21, verses 17 and 18, really gives us two principles I want us to consider this morning and think about. And that first principle will be found in verse 17 and deals with the loving of pleasure. And then verse 18 has to, do, has to deal with the ransom made or paid for the righteous. So very seemingly two opposite thoughts, uh, but very instructive this morning. Uh, let's look at those verses together. Proverbs 21 verse 17 says, He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous, and the transgressor for the upright. Solomon here makes an argument against what we would refer to as a luxurious life. A life that is driven by the desire for pleasure or the acquiring of things which bring pleasure. He is not denouncing all forms of uh, rest or all forms of pleasure by saying all of these things are bad in and of themselves. But you'll notice that he says very carefully that it's he that loves pleasure. In other words, one whose heart and mind is driven by finding that those things which bring pleasure to these earthly uh, temples or these earthly bodies. The warning is very, uh, it's very direct. Uh, he says, he that loves pleasure shall be a poor man. In other words, the man who sets out to just indulge in every pleasure that the society or the world has to bring will not find himself rich, but rather will find himself a very poor man. Now, I believe there is a direct temporal application that's being made here, but there's also a deeper spiritual meaning in that verse that we'll review towards the end. But as we see this, you notice that he says that the desire or the loving of a a life marked by pleasure brings ruin. Uh, It it brings the opposite of what man thinks it will bring. Uh, Man attempts to acquire things that brings him pleasure because he thinks that's where his happiness will come from. He believes that's where his satisfaction comes from is pleasure. And of course, we do not have to go very far today to find things to bring us pleasure. Um, it, uh, there are so many things that are going on that uh, the, the, the love of pleasure has taken us away from the things which we should be making our priority. Uh, again, he's not saying that pleasure itself is bad, but it's the loving of it. 
Uh, of course, in the, uh, the days in which uh, Solomon would have penned these words about those, those things which bring pleasure would have been vastly different than what it is today. Uh, the things that were brought for entertainment value would have not been the same in Solomon's day, but nevertheless, the principle is the same. Um, we certainly need to be careful about what our heart's desire is. A man that indulges himself in things to bring himself pleasure, spends his time and his money in such a way, is going to end up a poor man. And I think, that, again, that's not only in a temporal uh, situation, but spiritually speaking, a, a person who puts their, even their spiritual well-being in the hands of that which brings pleasure is going to end up a very poor individual. He makes reference to the loving of wine and oil. He says, shall not be rich. Now, again, there is a, a, an intentional use of those two things, the wine and the oil, both very well known to bring pleasure. Of course, the wine to bring uh, the, the intoxication that it comes with it. The oil was often reserved, reserved for things that were uh, very lavish gatherings. So the wine and the oil, again, he says, he that loves these things. It's connected with the pleasure. It's connected with the joy that those things bring temporally. Uh, costly entertainments. Uh, those things that are continually made our goal in life will ultimately only bring us to a place of a lack of resources. So the sense here is, is that one who is devoted or their heart is set upon pleasure is one that has made the God of pleasure his belly. It is, he is a glutton. I know oftentimes the word glutton, and again, it's one of those neglected terms in churches today. We don't preach much on the sin of gluttony, or gluttony is often only attributed to eating too much or overindulging in things, but you can be guilty of the sin of gluttony and overindulging in pleasure. In making it your life, your, your, your time is spent mostly in bringing entertainment and pleasure to yourself. No doubt uh, that is driving a lot of our society. Uh, it is driving us to say, this is what I am most spending my time on is how can I entertain myself or bring something that brings me joy or in this term, pleasure. A man who indulges to this luxurious living and eating and drinking, of course he says instead of adding to what he has, by doing that he's actually taking away from himself. So what he thinks is bringing him more is actually stealing from him. It's robbing him. So it's a very stern warning here. Now again, as I said, this also holds true with respect to spiritual things. We are told to not set our hearts upon the things of this world. We are to set our mind on the things of heaven. We're to set our mind on righteous things, spiritual things. Uh, we're not to spend the majority of our time indulging in carnal pleasures and carnal entertainment to gratify ourselves, but we are rather to indulge ourselves in that which brings eternal pleasure, which are the spiritual things. Again, a very practical, practical application. Uh, one commentator put it this way. He said, do we eat to live or live to eat? 
It's a very direct question. But the reality here is, is about getting our priorities of righteousness in order. Again, pleasure and entertainment is fine. It's fine and it should be enjoyed. But your times of those entertainments and pleasures should be with the intent of bringing you back rejuvenated and reinvigorated for the work of the Lord. In other words, the things that we come apart to do should not be the thing that we continually do over and over again, but should serve a purpose in bringing us back ready to serve God and ready to seek His kingdom. Sensual pleasure should not be our pastime. Temporal pleasures should not be our habit of life. I was challenged myself this week. How many hours do I waste indulging entertainment and pleasure of this world? Now, I realize this will rub some the wrong way, and I'm just using this as an illustration for me, and I'm, again, pulling a little bit into society, and I don't think it was by chance this morning that I have got that proverbial screen time notice this morning. My average screen time for the past week. I was a bit ashamed. Because I didn't realize it. I certainly did not realize how much time I had spent on average each day indulging in things that were nothing of real spiritual value. You say, well, maybe I was, relieved, maybe I was reading a... Um, Posts from a pastor or posts from a church or posts from a commentator. But I would say most likely those hours, the majority of those hours were not spent in deep reflection on the things of God. Because I'm sure that right along next to the quote from the preacher of old was probably something frivolous and really unhelpful. Again, this is not directed at you. That's the conviction for myself this morning. And I certainly looked at it and I said, there's another reason why I need to be sure that I'm not wasting my time. Just literally, just time ticking away. I'm reminded of what God's Word tells us to redeem the time. Redeem it. Use it for good. Use it for the glory of God. Again, there's nothing wrong with coming apart for a time of relaxation. I'm certainly not saying that and I'm not telling you to go home and throw all of your devices in the garbage. I'm not taking that stance. I'm just simply telling you there are things that we spend more time indulging ourselves in things that bring us pleasure. And I think if we were all honest this morning, if we were all honest, everybody here spends more time indulging in pleasure than we do the spiritual things. So I don't think anybody here could say, no, I'm spending most of my time in spiritual things. I highly doubt it. It's the nature of our world, but it shouldn't be the excuse, right? It's the nature of our world, but it shouldn't be the reason, well, you know, there's just too many things vying for my attention. Yesterday is in the past, right? There's nothing we can do about changing how we spent our time yesterday, but we certainly can change it for today. I was reminded of what Paul wrote in the book of Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, and remember the context he was writing to a group of servants, slaves, if you will, people who were under the thumb of a master. And we often use this quote, or use this verse rather, and it's a great verse to remind us. But in Colossians 3, verse 20, 22, he says, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, 
not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Notice the emphasis on singleness of heart. And whatsoever ye do, okay, whatsoever you do, whatever your hand finds to do, he says, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Paul is just simply addressing the relationship between the servant and the master, and he's using real-life temporal slavery in this sense. They were servants, and he says, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It is God that you serve. Of course, Jesus Himself in Matthew 6 Verse 33, very familiar passages. And again, what Jesus was speaking about in his day is not exactly the same as what uh, we would. But in Matthew 6, verse 31, he says, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. All those things that we so desperately think that we need. Again, you say that doesn't really connect to uh, those things which bring us temporal pleasure. I think it does. We seek those things which are our priority. Often people say, I do not have the time to spend seeking God as I would like. I'm too busy and my job takes me away. Listen, everybody has hindrances to it. We will make a priority for that which is most important to us. We always find time to do it. Like I said, my screen time alert today reminded me how much time I actually had that I wasted. And I can't get it back. And it's for temporal pleasure. Our wisdom here, as Solomon writes, should be to make it our utmost priority to seek first the kingdom of God. We move on to verse 18. Now again, it seems as if he changes the subject. And in a sense, he does. But notice he says, "...the wicked shall be a ransom." For the righteous and the transgressor for the upright. Now, notice here that there is this picture of the difference between the unrighteous and the righteous. Just like there's a difference between he who seeks pleasure becomes poor, there is a difference between those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. But an interesting words he uses here. He says, the wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous. Now, we see the word ransom and we immediately think of the ransom that Christ made for his people. In other words, a ransom that was paid was Christ was the ransom payment that was made to the Father on behalf of his people. In this sense, Solomon is not writing so much about the satisfaction of a payment being made, but to take the place or to stand in the stead of another. Now the reality here is, is it says that when the wicked here uh, are a ransom for the righteous. So in other words, when the wicked come in the stead of the righteous, 
In other words, when they come and they try to take the place of or try to carry out their wicked devices, the Bible says that God actually delivers the righteous from the plots and the plans of the unrighteous. In other words, God takes the place. Now, we're going to look at a couple of examples this morning, but think about times when the unrighteous tried to destroy the righteous. Uh, think about the story in Esther about Haman trying to uh, prepare the gallows to hang Mordecai and was trying to carry out wickedness and the very gallows in which in which Haman had, uh, had built to hang Mordecai upon is the very gallows in which he was hung upon. The unrighteous tried to carry out a, a, an awful act against the people of God, yet it was turned back against them. If you want to uh, turn there, or turn to, first of all to Proverbs 11, verse 8, here's the principle that Solomon is making reference to about that in the place of or in the stead of, the same use of the word ransom. And it'll direct you to the example of Mordecai in Esther 7, 9. But let's look first of all at Proverbs 11, 8. The righteous is delivered out of trouble, and the wicked cometh in his stead. Or in other words, the wicked receive the trouble in which they attempted to place upon the head of the righteous. Now again, some of you might have a cross-reference or a note in your Bible that immediately directs you to Esther chapter 7, verse number 9, which is the account that we just mentioned about uh, wicked Haman trying to uh, carry out the wickedness of hanging Mordecai on a, uh, at the gallows. So if you want to turn to Esther this morning, and let's look quickly at that and we'll see this principle. Esther is a uh, wonderful book, a reminder about how the wicked who try to devise evil against the righteous and God turns the tables on them, uh, if you will. Uh, look at verse 1. So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen, and the king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee, and what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. And she was praying and asking for a deliverance for her people. She was acting as an intercessor on behalf of her people. And she's saying to the king, If I have found favor with you, will you bring good upon my people? For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he? And where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? In other words, the king says, Esther, tell me who this person is who's devising evil against your people. This is really a striking passage of Scripture, what's happening here. And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. 
Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden, and Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. Then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? As word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And Harbana, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold, also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Don't overlook that. Don't overlook that how God delivers his people, the righteous, out of the hands of the wicked. God turned the tables on the wicked plot and the wicked scheme of Haman and turned his own gallows against him, that he was himself executed there. Then was the king's wrath pacified. What an amazing thought this is. That when the wicked, who seem to have it all, seem to be rising up in prosperity. Again, how would we tie this to the pleasures of this world? Because folks, you realize that the the world's only desire, and I hope we know this this morning, the the unbelieving world's only desires is to acquire as much pleasure and wickedness and sin as they can. They do not have a desire for the righteous things of God. We are not to be like the unrighteous. We're not to seek out the same things. It is very difficult during this time of year to not get pulled in and fall prey to the need and the want and the desire for more and more and more as if we want to be just like the wicked. Now again, I am not stating you should not celebrate Christmas. I do not take that stance that it is a pagan thing we don't touch. I do believe that the primary purpose of it is to exalt the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That is the primary purpose. It's not about the priorities of making sure that we have plenty under the tree. I watched people yesterday in absolute, just uh, words cannot describe. Jen and I both looked at each other, and you'll excuse this expression because you know what I mean. It was anything but a Hallmark movie. Anything but hatefulness and rudeness. All for the want of getting something. The sensual pleasures of life. We could not leave the stores fast enough yesterday. Because it, that was the drive. Right? The wicked are driven by their own desires. What was driving Haman? He wanted the righteous people destroyed. He wanted them removed. And Queen Esther's plea before the king, she was asking even to spare them with her life if need be. The difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. Or we might use the example of when an entire body of people are threatened with divine vengeance when their sin causes 
favor to be removed from an entirety of a people. One of the classic illustrations of that is in Joshua chapter 7 and the sin of Achan. Remember, the people were told when they went into the promised land that they were not to take a single devoted item. And it's interesting that God uses, God's word uses the term things devoted for destruction. Everything in Ai was to be destroyed. Nothing was to be taken. And any of the gold and silver that was removed was to be put into the treasury of the Lord. But what did Achan do? Achan, knowing the Word of God, it says he desired or coveted after, and he took some of the things from the spoil. Now, interestingly enough, when his sin is found out and Joshua comes to him, in his confession, Achan not only confesses to what he did, he gives specifically the items that he took, and he specifically says, here's where I hid them. You'll find the silver under my bed. And that's exactly where it was. Yet we look and we think, okay, Achan now is right with God. He's confessed. He is, he's sincere. He's repented. Yet what ends up Joshua has to give the order to actually have him stoned and his, all of his possessions. And it is a sad account to read. The entirety of everything he has, family and all, is burned. Why? Because that's how serious God takes sin. And the reality is, is God, sometimes even to, to, to preserve the righteousness of His people, will, will, will pour out judgment upon that which is wicked. Again, we see that God, for the righteous, He will put the wicked in their stead. A third example we might read and think about today is that sometimes God actually turns the wrath of the princes of the earth from His own people. In other words, the wrath was deserving upon His own people, but instead He causes His wrath to fall upon the wicked. And so the wicked become, in a sense, the ransom for the people of God. There's a king who desired the destruction of the Jews. But by the hand of God's providence, instead of the wrath being poured out on His people, He poured them out on the Egyptians and the Ethiopians and the Sabaeans. If you want to see this account, it's in Isaiah 43. Again, God was, uh, was within His rights to pour out judgment upon His people, but He uses this, he uses this word ransom. Again, this is so important to what we're talking about today. Isaiah 43, verse 1, he says, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Notice the beauty of this, these words. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. This is a ransom. He's talking about putting others 
in the place of the, of the judgment that they should have received, I have put those wicked in your stead or in your place. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters for the ends of the earth. Even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. You can see how God, even in his providence and his sovereignty, will turn upon the unrighteous judgment in order to spare his people. And the final example we could give you this morning is, of course, Cyrus. Cyrus did not even know, we referenced him a few weeks ago, did not even know he was being used by God. God uses an interesting term to describe him in verse number 1 of Isaiah 45. He calls him my shepherd. It's not because Cyrus was a righteous man, but it's because he was being used as an instrument in God's hand. And of course, Cyrus would be used to bring deliverance also to the people of God. We'll just look at Isaiah 44, verse 18, or verse 28, rather. It says, That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and shall perform all of my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two levied gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. Now notice this. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord. There is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light, create darkness. I make peace, create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. The beauty of what is being written here about a ransom for the people. Again, let's conclude by just giving some concluding thoughts on this. The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous and the transgressors for the upright. I, made, I remarked when I was studying this week that Isaiah 43.4 stood out to me. Since thou was precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable and I have loved thee, but therefore will I give men for thee. That's the very ransom. I love thee. I will give men for thee. I will place people in your stead to receive that which you should have received. Now again, we're beginning to see the spiritual connection. We're beginning to see the connection between a ransom payment being made and we have to, be, uh, have to look at the reality of how Jesus Christ, how Jesus Christ was placed and voluntarily went and He received the full wrath of God that we deserved in our stead, in our place. 
I love what Matthew Henry said. He said, what is often done by the providence of God? The righteous are delivered out of trouble and the wicked come in his stead and so seems as if he were a ransom for him. God would rather leave many wicked people to be cut off than to abandon his own people. And he says, I will give men for thee. I don't think that can be put any more beautifully than the way Matthew Henry wrote that. The wicked, no doubt, shall be brought into troubles. The trouble either they threatened, either towards God, or they designed to carry out against the righteous. The principle here is, by the very means in which they intended to destroy God's people, God will use those same means against them to destroy them to deliver His people. I hope we're understanding this this morning. Christ is a ransom for His people. When the wicked try to say to you, I want nothing to do with your God. I want nothing to do with your... I don't want anything to do with your standard of what Christmas is. I don't want anything to do with your Savior. Realize that when evil men intend to destroy the righteous based on the promises of the Word of God, it is the wicked themselves much like Haman, who hung on the gallows that are bringing upon themselves everlasting destruction. I realize today we have a situation where God's people are being threatened. God's people are being used as the pawns in the wicked world's game. But take heart in knowing that in the end, it is the wicked will lose their life and the righteous find eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's hard in these days and age, folks, to realize we're living in a day when it seems like the wicked are winning. I was reminded again in Psalm 73 when the psalmist saw the prosperity of the wicked, he saw the acquiring of all the things and the pleasure of this world. And it uses that little word until he went into the sanctuary of God and it says, and then I saw their end. Their end was that they were placed on slippery places. Say, I don't see the connection this morning. I hope by the Spirit of God He shows you the connection between this drive for the pleasures of this world and the drive that the pleasures of this world are always going to run concurrently with a desire to destroy that which is wicked or that which is righteous. Folks, you wonder why during this time of year, especially when you stand up for the things of God, why there seems to be a hatred towards the Jesus Christ, why there seems to be a hatred towards... Listen, Christmas is not about a baby. You're absolutely right. It's not about a baby. It's not even about a manger. It's about the God of this world coming to this world, taking on a robe of human flesh without ever ceasing to be God, to seek and to save that which was lost. To be placed in the stead of His people. Folks, we are not to seek after the things of this world. I implore us every year, and I try to do it even before we get to this time of year, to keep our priorities in the right place. This week, especially, your priorities are going to be pulled in so many different ways. And the pull of this world, we think it's not having any influence on us. I would wholeheartedly disagree. It's heavily 
pulling on us and it's influencing us. And I hope that we would make Christ our priority this week. Christ came to this earth to seek and to save that which was lost. What does it mean to save? It means to grant unto those whom the Father gave Him eternal life, to give them life instead of death. Be very, very careful about even this time to make sure the message of Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. Young parents, teach your children to seek first the kingdom of God, especially this week especially during a time when everything seems to be give me more, give me more, give me more. Only to find out moments after those gifts are opened, we don't have enough. Everything we need is in Jesus Christ. He is our sufficiency. He should be our satisfaction. Again, pleasure is not wrong. Having things is not wrong. But do not set your heart upon them. Every temporal thing of this world will burn away. Every temporal thing will burn away. But our standing in Christ will never be removed. I hope we're thankful for that this morning. Let's pray and then we'll sing a closing hymn. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, may we truly be thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ and the substitutionary payment that He has made for us. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on the kingdom of God and to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Lord, thank You for this passage and this proverb. The book of Proverbs, it's not just a book of practical suggestions, but deep doctrinal truth that teaches us how we can actually live out these truths in our life. Father, bless this day that we have together and may Christ be exalted and magnified and glorified in each one of us. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.